Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Last radio hour of the week. That music means I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Our hundreds of Hillsdale Dialogues, the best podcast in America, is are available at iTunes and Spotify. You can go back to the beginning. We started with Job or Homer, I can't remember, and we have moved up. And now we go around in circles and we go back and we cover what we missed over the first 10 years of this exercise. And uh, right now... We are reading Churchill, the author. And a fortnight ago, we finished The History of the English-Speaking People, a 12-volume, four-volume, 12-book effort that took 13 weeks. And uh, Dr. Arn, I've been greeted everywhere that I go. Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, it is, How are you doing? That was very well received. People like that. And I think it's because, generally speaking, people like to know how we got where we are. And that may be the first coherent uh, skeleton of history they've ever heard, at least as far as the English-speaking people uh, obtain. Because a lot of people, my law students, I'm back in the classroom, they have no idea how we got here. It's amazing to me. They're going to law school, and they do not know how we ended up in 2023. Yeah, yeah. If uh, The bad news is kids are young, and they don't know anything. Uh, the good news is they learn fast. <laughs> so if you can get it going, and you know, I, you know, we, we were talking last week about how gloomy everything is, and neither of us believes that the country's done for. But look at the revival of learning that's going on all over the place. 10% of the 15%, maybe, of parents have taken their kids out of the public schools. And school choice is growing like a weed everywhere. We, we, we have 80 charter schools across the country that we're advising in one way or another, and we can't answer the mail itself because people want to learn. And that's, and so let's teach them. Why not? Well, let's teach them about the River War. Let's begin by having your general observation. I've got lots of notes on the River War. I sent you a few pages of outline. Just Larry Arnn has been reading the River War for a long time. What's your general observation on, on Churchill's second book? Uh, well, it's, uh, in my estimation, his third best book, uh, and he wrote close to 50. Uh, it uh, strikes like lightning out of nowhere. And the reason is he reached a stage of maturity. You know, he, Churchill was, when did he write this, 18? He was 25 years old when he wrote this. And uh, his earlier book, the Malakan Field Force about fighting in Afghanistan is less mature. Uh, this book is the great themes of Churchill's life are present in this book and extensively worked out. And uh, his power as an author has grown to a great place. Uh, I, you know, I've been reading Churchill too long, and so I know too much about it. But uh, I think when he was a younger man, both his rhetoric and his writing was stylized. He was copying people. 
And, you know, he was good at it, too. He copied very good people. But then he found his voice, and he invented something new. And it's, you know, very wonderful. Well, when you sit down with this book that is written in 1899, uh, Churchill was born in 1874, and the conflicts that we are going to talk about stretch from uh, the 1870s until the 1880s, basically. He's born in 1874. Uh, that's just as Disraeli, whom we talked about a fortnight ago, ascends to the top of the so-called greasy pole, his own term. Uh, he grabs the Panama, uh, not the Panama Canal, the Suez Canal. They would have taken the Panama Canal if he'd known about it. Uh, and and they get, they get control of Egypt in, in the year that Churchill is born. But Gladstone then tosses out Disraeli, and he campaigns against something called Beaconsfieldism. And about this time, Churchill has finished Harrow, but he isn't even close to being done with Sandhurst yet. But he's watching all this stuff as a young boy, and when he gets done with Sandhurst, he goes off. You mentioned the, the fighting in Afghanistan. He joins the fourth queen owned Hussars. That means he's a cavalryman, right? That's right. He was a cavalry officer. He, uh, uh, his father was disappointed in him many times. And uh, one of the times was when he didn't make a good enough score on his entrance exams to get into the infantry. And the infantry was maybe more prestigious. His dad thought so. The cavalry was more fun and more expensive. You had to have horses and stuff. Ah. And, and dad, dad was not a wealthy man. I mean, he was by most standards a wealthy man, but he occupied a station that required money. And so uh, Churchill found his happiness, uh, which had been destroyed by going to school. When he went to the to uh, to um, cavalry school, and he just he just thought it was the greatest thing in the world. He writes very well about all that in My Early Life, a book very much to read, and uh, and and so he's you know he's he's a rollicking young adventurer now. And so he's twenty five uh, years old when he writes this book, but he's actually in the book, The River War. Churchill takes part in this, not giving away the ending, but we've got to begin long before Churchill gets to the River War with a fellow by the name of the Mahdi and a fellow by the name of Chinese Gordon. And these, I, you know, I knew a little bit about them because anyone who knows how the world got to where it is knows that the Mahdi mattered and the Chinese Gordon mattered. But I didn't know much about them till I read the River War. And there are painstaking and delicately drawn portraits of both leaders and not unsympathetic to the Mahdi. That, that's surprise number one. He understands a, uh, a Muslim fanatical leader and where he comes from and how his tribes came together. I, I found that amazing, Larry Arn. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, Churchill had absorbed, he, he developed to a great state, this idea that uh, you, you don't want to have absolute enemies. And uh, he was looking for the good in his enemies. He even did that for Hitler a little while, but that didn't last long. Uh, so, yeah, he's... Uh, just think, all of the great themes of Churchill's life come together for the first time in this book because it's an imperial war, and Churchill is an imperialist. It's the first, or anyway, an early Islamic republic. 
very radical, just like the things we know today. Uh, it's uh, an episode. It's, it maybe is the first grade, but it's certainly one of the first grade episodes in mechanized warfare. And so it, because of the, the, the way of the thing, uh, it, it, it shows, you know, you can understand how Churchill understood the First World War. Absolutely you can. And, and, and I want people to understand, for the Steelers fan, Egypt owned the Sudan at the time of Chinese Gordon. And the Sudan is this vast, sprawling country to the south of Egypt in which slave trading was common and could not be abolished. And eventually the Mahdi rises up in a religious revolt to drive out the so-called Turks, meaning the Egyptians and the English. He succeeds, and the English, because Gladstone wants no part of this imperialism that Dizzy and Churchill love, sends a guy named Chinese Gordon, who's run the imperial Chinese troops. He's just an adventurer. He's quite a person. What do you think of, of Chinese Gordon? Well, he's uh, a combination of uh, Glycippus, whom Sparta sent to rescue Syracuse from the Athenians. Uh, their relief expedition was usually just one soldier to go take over. And that's how they destroyed Athens. And, uh, and then the Texas Rangers. He's like them, too. And the British, they were terribly like us. And the, you know, the world was their frontier. And so go off to Hekingon. His, his nickname was Chinese Gordon because he went to China and took charge of a bunch of troops uh, working for the emperor and saved the situation and got heavily decorated by Britain and China. And then he goes off to Khartoum. And you have to understand where Khartoum is located. It's located nowhere. Uh, it's a fertile, it's the beginning of a fertile, beautiful country that, however, is the wrong side of a vast desert. And the Nile River runs through that desert for a thousand miles. And so you can get to it where the Nile is deep enough for boats, but it often isn't. And so they get down there to Khartoum. Now, Khartoum is important because uh, the Nile is there and you can trade up it to the north toward Alexandria a ways. And then south is all this fertile land and it's a trading center. It's a training center, and that's where Gordon goes. We'll come back and talk about what happens to him next. On the new episode of The Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. The confusion is all around us now. I protest about education today, that uh, the debate, almost the entire debate, it's about what we do to the kids to get them the way we want. They think uh, when they talk about outcomes, ultimately what they mean is, is it the kind of person we want to make? And the we want is crucial. So I fear that and think that that way of thinking makes us prey to the worst forms of the artificial intelligence outcomes. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now, only available on The Larry Arn Show. Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio, and subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu.
Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. This week and next, Dr. Larry Aaron and I are covering Winston Churchill's book, The River War, and a true account in which, of the war in which Churchill participated in the Sudan to reclaim the Sudan for Egypt, which was run by uh, England in a most unusual way. We'll get to that in a moment. You know, you mentioned that the uh, Chinese Gordon was a lot like the Texas Rangers, Dr. Aaron. At your suggestion, I got, and I'm almost finished listening to Empire of the Summer Moon. And I now know something about the Comanches and the Comancheria. And I know something about the good Texas Rangers and the bad Texas Rangers. It is an astonishingly good book. You are, you do not make your suggestions lightly. I have learned more about no, it, those tribes than I ever had any idea. I had no idea. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, when you finish that book, by the way, you wish you were man enough to be a Comanche. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're not. You know, I mean, it's just awesome. And, and then you realize uh, yeah. there's lots to learn about what what went on on the frontier that we don't know about because it's just it was such a vast expanse of people vanished into it and they didn't come out of it for 150 years because the Comanches That's killed right. them. Yeah, and they, and you know, it uh, if you if you if you're not blinded by ideology. What you will see is that that conflict, somewhat like this conflict that we're talking about here, is a human tragedy. Because humans are all human at bottom, but they vary more widely than animals because they have discretion, they have rationality. And so they, they build up very different ways. And, and this, this, this war here, I'll tell you what's amazing about this war. Uh, first of all, that, that war that uh, the Comanche with the Comanche, that war is a tragedy because the Comanche were bound to lose. They didn't have a six. They didn't have a six shot Colt revolver. That's what it comes down to. More importantly, they didn't they didn't have 10 million people. Right. Hundred million. People. They had 30,000. Right. The whole that's that's their population. Right. Yeah. So they're bound to lose. Well, this is like that, too. And Churchill is like those Texas Rangers that went out to accept that he sympathized with the dervishes. And the he dervishes the- are the army of the Mahdi that surround Khartoum. Chinese Gordon has been sent down to evacuate. Gladstone wants no part of this. And unfortunately, Chinese Gordon changes his mind and says, we're staying. Send help. And the English don't send help. And a certain Lord Randolph Churchill rises in the House of Commons to make this an issue. That's the interesting part. The guy who made this an issue is Churchill's father. And Churchill, of course, will come to be the man who eventually avenges Gordon. But Gladstone sends help. It doesn't get there in time. And the image we have of Chinese Gordon is fighting on the rooftop, right? At the end. Yeah. Yeah, and they kill him. And uh, they kill every Englishman in the city when they took it. And the, and the, uh, uh, the relief force that was tardily sent, and by the way, this is going across the desert on camels, which is, you know, amazingly efficient if it's the only way to get across the desert. <laughs> but, it's not, <laughs> but it's not the way to move a modern army. Well, in that relief force was... Herbert Kitchener, who became very significant in Churchill's life and was soon enough the commander to uh, command a much larger force 
that was sent years later to actually avenge, to retake Khartoum and avenge General Gordon. Uh, and uh, that Gordon is murdered in Go 18. Uh, uh, Gordon dies in 1885. That's when Khartoum is lost and the English turn around and they leave and they leave one guy in Egypt, Lord Comer. I think that I'm saying his name incorrectly, Evelyn Baring, Lord Cromer. Uh, he is an archetype, isn't he, of a certain kind of Englishman who runs the world for a century? Two oh, minutes. yeah, yeah. And he, he's a, a bookkeeper and a massive imperial power. He was both. But, and he made lots of deals. And he made some about Khartoum. And, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the fact that he, for 12 years, he waited the English were not too upset that Gordon got wiped out. Gladstone was hurt. But eventually, eventually, the English come back. We'll talk about that when we come back. Welcome back, America. We're talking about the fact that uh, this week and next, The River War is a book by Winston Churchill, Dr. Larry Arnett, President of Hillsdale College, and a Churchill scholar and a Churchill biographer. And at Hillsdale are collected many of the papers of Sir Martin Gilbert and Winston Churchill. And we decided that Churchill, the author, deserved a number of weeks. And we are now on The River War, the second of the books of his that we are dealing with. And this is the first of two parts on The River War. Uh, Gordon arrived in 1884. He lasted a year. He died. The, the, the British withdrew. Um, eventually, the Brits want their empire back, Larry Arn. Meanwhile, back home over the next six years, Gladstone does a bunch of stuff and he falls over Ireland and the, and the Imperials, they're back. And in the, in the emergence comes Lord Randolph Churchill in with Salisbury and they want, they want to avenge Gordon. They want the Sudan back in the control of Egypt. And this fellow we referred to in the last segment, uh, Evelyn Baring has put together uh, a plan for Egypt to prosper, but they got it. They've got to apply modern war. And what you said at the beginning, modern war begins to appear here. What What do you think that the the the, the dervishes expected? The the Mahdi dies of fever not long after Gordon dies, and he's replaced by a guy who is a very fine general, uh, the Khalifa. Who, by the way, there's sympathy there for this guy as well, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Well, he was, uh, you know, the way Churchill sets this up, I mean, it's, it's in my opinion, this is one of Churchill's best books, and it's uh, better than the, than the Empire of the Summer Moon it, uh, because he, he sees, you know, Churchill was a rare guy who could stand on a battlefield and see everything that produced it. Produced it. And that means the factories back home. That means the human understanding that produced those factories. That means all of that, right? The form of government that, that produces the army, right? He sees these conflicts in their whole dimension. And it's an interesting thing because Churchill was never strictly a partisan. Uh, he sees the value in the way of life of the dervishes. Because, you know... Uh, riding rough, sweeping across the desert. There are plenty of things in Churchill's life that show that that kind of thing appealed to him. And so he had sympathy for these people while he set out to kill them. And uh, he did kill a lot of them. 
Now, he also had sympathy for Gordon, and he had sympathy for his father. I want to talk about what happened back in England before the expedition. So understand, England loses the first part of the River War, and Gordon is wiped out, and Gladstone, after much pressure from Randolph Churchill, does not get the expedition there. Gladstone suffers. And then a couple of years pass, and in English politics, and it connects up with how American politics works. That's why I like this as well. They have an election in 1886 that the combination of the Tories and the liberal trade unionists won 393 seats. By contrast, Boris Johnson's big smashing red wall victory of a couple of years ago, they won 364 spots. So you want to talk about a wipeout. Gladstone got wiped out in 1884 and immediately um, Lord Churchill tries to fuse progressive conservatism, a.k.a. Tory democracy, onto Lord Salisbury. How did that work out, Dr. Arn? Because that matters a lot to what comes down. Well, I, uh, Rand- Lord Randolph, Churchill's father, Randolph Churchill, was a great talent. I, I don't regard him as a great man, but that'd be controversial with many of my friends. Uh, he took a stand early. You know, they win this election. He was important to it. He's a young man. You know, the the prime minister is the fifth Marquess of Salisbury. Uh, You know, a grand person, one of the richest families, one of those most influential families. And this young man takes him on right away on, of all things, economy and government, spending too much money. We were talking about this last week. And, uh... He got his head handed to him. He, you know, he resigned and he thought it might break the government or they'd have to ask him back with augmented power. And the bad news was nobody noticed. He was the chancellor of the exchequer. He was the leader of the House of Commons. And then he was over. Meanwhile, his son is off at Sandhurst and then India. And so let's flash forward here to to the key part. Uh, Churchill wants to go from India to the war. Because now the Salisbury is in charge. Bering has reformed Egypt over a, do- a dozen years. They're ready to do it. And they've identified this guy, Kirchner. And, and this fellow was born in 1850 in Ireland, had a very brutal father. He goes off to find glory in the Imperial Army. He's sitting around Egypt for a long time, and he gets the main chance. He gets pointed Sirdar. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, he's the Sirdar. And that's a, you know, it's a... Can I be the Sirdar of Hillsdale? Yeah, right. We can. It's, it's a cool. We can make up any title for you we want. That's a cool one. And uh, you know it, what's good about it is it doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean, so I'm now. Uh, I just. I would like a plaque. Sirdar of Hillsdale College is my new official title. But the Sirdar is commander in chief, and Churchill wants to go, and Kirchner doesn't want him, and. Evidently, in the first edition of this book, Churchill's pretty hard on Kirchner. And in the second edition, he's not so hard because he realizes he's going to have to work with this guy because he's the hero eventually of this war, right? Oh, I'm glad that you mispronounced that name because I'm going to make my colleague Richard Langworth happy now. I make him angry every week, not mentioning the Churchill Project at Hillsdale College. But the name is actually said Kitchener. And when you say Kirchner, he's squirming right now. Oh, Kitchener, Kitchener, I'm sorry. Where do we find, by the way, the Churchill Project helps me get ready for this. I hope he likes these programs. Does he like these programs? Oh, he, he adores them begrudgingly. 
because I'm not doing the basic blocking and tackling, you know, like telling about us and how great we are. And, uh, and so, yeah, but he's, he's an old friend of mine and he's been working on Churchill for 478 years. I think he's and, going uh, to help us with the great, the world crisis, because I, I told your, your major domo, I said, I've read one volume. I'm overwhelmed by the world crisis. There's too much in the world crisis and I don't know how we're going to get oh, through yeah. it, but we're, I, I know how to handle the river war and, Great contemporaries, but the, the the world crisis is a crisis for Hugh. But the uh, the Churchill Project it just lays all this out, right? It's over at Hillsdale.edu. Just look up the Churchill Project. Yeah, that's right, and and it's you know it's a very rich, the richest set of stuff you can find, and it's you know the product of work that Martin Gilbert did, and I did, and my wife did, and Richard Langworth did, and it's the biggest and the best. So so Kitchener. Doesn't want Churchill. Why not? Here's this young cavalry man. He wants to. He wants to mobilize and he wants to change from the Queen's Fourth Hussars to become part of the Twenty First Lancers. And Kitchener is saying no, no, no. And I mean, he's saying no like twenty times. I don't want that kid. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, uh, it's even more dramatic than that. Churchill became uh, by the time he was twenty six years old the most widely read war correspondent in Great Britain. And he made lots of negative comments about generals. And, uh, you know, and he's a second lieutenant. And, uh, and you know, he could really write. And uh, that's unfair. And uh, generals didn't like it. And they made a rule that you couldn't write for the press if you were a serving officer, which, by the way, had been fairly common before these times. And so Churchill both kept doing it and also would resign his commission and write a bunch of articles and get attached again and see more stuff and write more stuff. So he's just wrong. And Kitchener is uh, staunch. I I mean, very few people were Yeah, yeah. That's very good, yeah. Every two people appointed by nature to dislike each other. Churchill and Kitchener are are that. And... (laughs) (laughs) that's well put you're right they are not the same star they are not born under the same star not a bit you know and and kitchener is methodical and that's what war is becoming and so the methodical nature of kitchener becomes very important in this book because churchill reacts powerfully against it while also understanding you're going to have to do it. But if you do it, do you lose your imagination? Kitchener is relentless. There's a, there's a description of Kitchener on pages 94 to 5 uh, that makes me think you did not want to argue with him. And once the new Tory government of 1895 found an opportunity of taking back the Sudan Evelyn Baring picks Kitchener, and Kitchener begins. It takes three years. I thought the River War, until I read this, I thought it was a one-year deal. Did, you know, do you think most people think it's it's a three-year war? Well, the, the reason they think that is because uh, uh, what happened was a form of manufacturing for most of the war, right? Because, you know, first of all, they killed Gordon, uh, Kitchener is among the ones charging to Khartoum to get there. They never get there, and they don't save him. And now they're going back, and they're going to go back, and what are they going to do? They're going to start it 
Alexandria, where the Nile is everything, and they're going to put a major military force on boats and also railroad building equipment and locomotives. And they're going to put them on boats and they're going to take them down to the place where the Nile gets shallow and they're going to build a railway around the shallows. And then they're going to launch everything back onto the boats. They put the boats on the railway. First the railway's on the boats, then the boats go on the railway, and then then the boats get off and the boats are ready to fight now. And the people and the guns and the horses and the ammunition and the cannon and the machine guns, right? They get all that down there to Khartoum. Now, we have seen a little bit of this in the American Civil War, but the American Civil War occurred over a developed piece of property. I mean, the land was not so developed in the South, but there were railroads everywhere. This is over nothing. This is taking war in its industrial capacity wherever it needs to go. And the relentlessness of it, when we come back, just so you understand where we are, uh, the battle... Cromer, Evelyn uh, Baring tells Kitchener to proceed on March 12th of, of 1896, 13 years after Gordon's death. Churchill does not get there until August of 1898, 30 months after the expedition begins. So there, But when we come back, we talk about what Churchill, he, he pays attention. He knows everything that happened in those 30 months. I don't know how he did this. It's really remarkable. Stay tuned. Hillsdale Dialogue continues. The River War is on the table. Dr. Arn is my guest. Stay tuned. The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English Justin Jackson picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in The Exodus Story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E, hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. Welcome back. I'm Hugh Hewitt. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. The Hillsdale Dialogues, including this year of Churchill, the author, are found at uh, hughforhillsdale.com or just Google up Hillsdale Dialogues and you can find them. Dr. Arn, uh, In the River War, my edition, pages 110 to 244, is all about logistics and the advance of Kitchener from Alexandria to Atbara. And so it's a, it's 130 pages of of relentless moving forward. Churchill's not there. There are very few battles, some skirmishes. It's just moving a war machine forward. Uh, yeah. So understand what Churchill was doing in this time, this, this three years. He's becoming famous because he, by hook and by crook, he gets himself to war scenes uh, up to Afghanistan first, sent to Cuba as a spy. 
watch the Spanish fight the Cuban rebels. And, and he's learning all the time. And, uh, and he wants to go to the Sudan. And he's written a best-selling book. And his newspaper articles about war are the most widely read in Britain. And so this thing happens to him. First of all, he's a, he's, he, he's, he comes from a famous family. He knows everybody. So two people, uh, the Prince of Wales, the heir to the throne, and the prime minister of the country invite him to come and talk to them about his book. And they have a grand talk, both of them. And then they said they do what they do. Young man, is there anything I can do for you? And Churchill says, I want to go to the Sudan. And therefore, the heir to the throne and the sitting prime minister of the country ask Lord Kitchener if he will accept Churchill into his force. And Churchill says no. Kitchener says no. Kitchener says says no. Now, first of all, in the Churchill biography, uh, there are photographs of Young British officers, it was a very officer-heavy uh, uh, army because it was made to be able to grow if there's a conflict. And so they would besiege the war office. They'd stand around outside waiting for somebody important to come by so they could ask them if they could go. And, you know, if you were a, a personnel senior officer, you couldn't get in and out of your office. They're in the way, right? Churchill didn't do that. Churchill... He went to the prime minister and when he was turned down, he went to the place. He worked around backwards, right through through, uh, Lord Baring and he got a kind of permission and then he just got on a boat and went and Uh, showed up down there. His relentlessness in getting there matches the relentlessness of Kutzner building this railroad. And it's, it's sort of like the river, Bridge Over the River Kwai movie. They're just going to build this bridge, whether it, and they're going to build this railroad no matter what, because once the railroad is there, the dervishes are doomed. And I don't know. See, w- Churchill very much believed in the importance of logistics and machinery and science and warfare. It's just that unlike Kitchener, he regretted it because he could see the destruction that was going to come from it. Uh, in his novel written in these same years uh, called Severola, he has a he reports a conversation in which the hero is just Winston Churchill says, uh, I, our maximum guns will be, that's first machine guns, will be duplicated by, well, I, we will lose our virtue, is what he says, and then we'll start losing our wars. But we can't lose them because we have these maximum guns. But then he, 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 in this book, he sees what's going to happen when both sides have them. He's keeping track of the maximum guns and the gunboats throughout. They are the, the evolution of warfare. The gunboats and the maximum guns are the evolution of the, the, the lancers, the cavalrymen are a distant echo of what was. I do want to note in this segment too, Dr. Arn. I first noticed in the River War, he's always aware of what British intelligence is doing. And he's always quite complimentary on the need for having an intelligence service that everywhere watches and always spies. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, there, there are two reasons for that. One is they were leaking to him. <laughs> so he liked that. <laughs> but also 
Yeah, that's right. In, in war, he writes much later, truth must always be accompanied by a bodyguard of lies. Uh, and uh, yeah, so he, and see, he, and just remember, what, what a, it's a, it's a beauty. It's a, it's a microcosm of the problems of our world today. The problem that Churchill confronted in his life and wrote very much, I've written a book about this, uh, is we're becoming so powerful and yet we're still mortal. And, and that means we know a lot, but we can't know everything. But if I take one thing away from the river war, we'd better know what our enemies are doing. Cause, uh, Kirchner, Kishner knew everything that was going on in the Khalifa's camp. When we come back, the Battle of Omdurman, and I hope I'm saying that right, we'll check. The Churchill Project is at Hillsdale College. Go over to hillsdale.edu and type in Churchill Project. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.